Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And this is the Josh Marshall podcast. You know, we have, we're in this funny space right now with January 6th. And before we got started, I was actually talking uh, to my colleagues about the fact that, you know, I don't know, I don't know if people remember this, but we were actually recording the podcast live when January 6th was getting started. I actually distinctly remember when we were recording, you know, and I'm I, the way we record this, I, I sit here in front of a computer. So sometimes I can, if there's breaking news or something like that, I can see things as, as, as we're talking. And I noticed those first videos when some, you know, the people who could, who could then still be sort of, you know, reasonably seen as protesters started knocking down some barricades, not the stuff when people are flooding into the building and stuff like that, but just when you've got, you know, some protesters kind of pushing against barricades and some police are holding back and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was just a memory of, you know, kind of how that all got started. And this has, as I have been discussing and we've, and, and the rest of the team has been discussing sort of through news pieces, this is all kind of coming back now. And it's always a little it's always a little unclear how news is going to progress. You know, when things are going to crystallize. Now, we're not too far off from the anniversary of January 6th. We're I guess a little more than a month. It's February 10th. So that is part of it, and there was a lot of, you know, commemoration and and you know, discussion of it then. But it really seems to be driven right now by two things. One is that statement uh, that Mike Pence said last weekend, actually last Friday, where he basically said, no, Trump's wrong. I had no ability to overturn the election. That's wrong. It's not how it works. Full stop. Would have been better if he would have said, and we lost. And let's absorb the fact that we lost. And when you lose an election, you can't overthrow the election or stay in power because you want to. He didn't say that, but he did at least say pretty definitively on the on the whole, uh, you know, secret vice presidential power to change the result of the election thing. And then we had and but right before we started, we went back and looked because I was I was thinking that Pence's statement came just after the legitimate political discourse announcement from the RNC, which was actually part of their censuring Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And in the process of, you know, the statement that was that censure, they had this line about, you know, investigating legitimate political discourse, i.e. 
the horror and disgrace that we saw uh, last January 6th, uh, you know, a year ago, January 6th, was legitimate political discourse. In fact, I was wrong. They both happened the same day. I don't know exactly, you know, which hour by hour was first, but point being, one was not in reaction or even affected by the other because they were basically simultaneous. But these two things have, have catalyzed the discussion. And since then, there have been a number of reactions from Republicans to this legitimate political discourse line and trying to trying to massage it, trying to move past it, trying to, you know, wanting, wishing kind of hadn't been said and stuff like that. Now, I've done a number of posts over the last few days where I've been arguing that you have this kind of tripartite dance right now with the January 6th committee, ex-president Trump, and elected Republicans as the third force. And both Trump and the Jan 6 committee are both, they both keep upping the ante. We've seen in recent weeks, Trump has increasingly moved towards, it's not enough for you to vote against a commission to investigate January 6th. It's not enough for you to say, okay, well, maybe we lost. But still there were irregularities, whatever. It's not enough for you to keep your head down. You need to say the insurrection was great. You need to say, I won and the insurrection was wonderful and those guys are political prisoners and blah, 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 blah. Now, I think he's doing this in part because there are some little signs that the GOP is not trying to move past Trumpism, but maybe move past Trump. Maybe DeSantis can be the new Trump. You know, he's, he's, he's remade himself in Trump's image, all that kind of stuff. So he's, he's trying to make sure he holds on to the thing. At the same time, the January 6th committee, and I think this is important to recognize since up until quite recently, there's been a lot of people saying, ah, you know, they're getting dicked around in the courts. They're, you know, they're running out of time, uh, you know. Trump and Meadows and and Steve Bannon are playing them, blah, 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 blah. But even in advance of putting out a report or having any findings or even having any uh, live testimony, which I guess now it seems like they're going to start in April, they keep upping the ante themselves. They keep forcing this issue back into the public discussion. And in ways that Republicans, elected Republicans, have to discuss it and have to address it. You know, we, we've seen this stuff about, you know, the, the tearing up uh, government documents, uh, sending a bunch of government documents down to Mar-a-Lago, uh, a drip, drip, drip of, you know, Rudy did this. And, and there was this one meeting where this was just, just keeps, keeps coming. So you really have to see the reactions of, you know, Trump is responding to the committee and the committee is responding to Trump. And elected Republicans, setting aside the part of the party that is, that is you know, totally down with January 6th and loves it and stuff like that. I'm talking about the, the people not in, in you know, 100% GOP districts. So like yesterday or a couple days ago, I think it was two days ago, Mitch McConnell, maybe it was yesterday, I'm forgetting. Uh, Mitch McConnell basically said, uh, that's, not that's not legitimate political discourse. And it's interesting. He actually he actually called it a violent insurrection, and you don't have to use the I word. 
I've actually noticed that a lot of media figures who were calling it an insurrection, if you listen closely, they call it a riot now. Now, it's not wrong to call it a riot. It was a riot at some level, but it certainly, that's a decision that depoliticizes it. It's a riot. Things get out of control. People get people do crazy stuff. Insurrection has a very aggressive, specific meaning. And it was so as notable to me that he used that word. And then uh, I think it was the same day you had Kevin McCarthy asked in two different settings uh, up on Capitol Hill, what about this legitimate political discourse thing? In both cases, he was literally running away as he answered. Now, that happens sometimes on Capitol Hill. Someone's walking, and but this was a little more, right? And the first time, he basically said, well, it wasn't that, that actually legitimate, that, that legitimate political discourse line, that wasn't about January 6th. That was about subpoenaing some RNC members who were in Florida at the time. I mean, <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. I mean, <laughs> no one interpreted it that way. And in, you know, and in fact, what the RNC said they didn't really say specifically what they were talking about. They just said January 6th, right? Now, so I guess you can say they're talking about, you know, when when that morning when Kate had a cup of coffee, that happened on January 6th. Maybe they were talking about that, right? I mean, they could be talking about anything, I guess. But what we really mean when we say January 6th was that thing when Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building. So, we're seeing this all play out and these things are significant. There's, you know, there's a mix of cynicism of, oh, it never matters. They always get away with it, blah, 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 blah. And then there's also people who look at the last few years and say, they do always get away with it. Is this going to be any different? You know, and that's understandable. So we're going to talk about that. There's a lot going on here. And I think that these, this dance is actually pretty important, both in terms of the future of the country, also in terms of just the political realities of the moment. Because if you look at Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, even though they are very different figures and react to January 6th in different ways, they are united in this. They want to benefit from the energy of the big lie in January 6th and all the people who are totally consumed by that. But they don't want to talk about it much because a substantial majority of the country does not like what happened on January 6th. So you want to have it both ways. You want to benefit from it, but just like look forward and let's talk about inflation and the fact that everybody is upset about COVID, whether you're just upset that we still have COVID or you're upset about masks or whatever it is. A lot sucks in the country right now. And if you're the party of opposition, that's good. The, the, the party in power <laughs> doesn't do well when everything sucks and everything does suck. So you want to focus on everything sucking. But this is being brought back into the mix. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a big deal. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a few other issues. But before we do, let me remind you, if you've got to return to the office, you may as well come back strong. 
But now that your daily commute is back, you can't afford to waste time taking everyone's custom coffee order. Grady's Cold Brew makes it easy to please everyone at the office, even the vegan keto bodybuilder in sales. Took me a minute. I processed that that mix of words. Uh, Their bean bags are simple to brew. Just add them to a container of cool water and let them steep in the office fridge overnight. Stock your break room with sweeteners, syrups, alt milks, and let everyone be their own barista. Order a bean bag box to get 72 servings of subtly sweet cold brew for six That's the price that even accounting will love. If you're ready to give it a try, get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Kate Riga, what is, uh, what's up? How was the coffee on on the morning of January 6th? I can't say that 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 is the biggest part of that day that has stuck in my brain. (laughs) Well, there you go. Um, Yeah. So, you know, this kind of legitimate discourse thing has been, you know, kind of an explosion that different pieces are have been falling out in the days since. So, like you said, we had McCarthy, you know, basically kind of sprinting away from reporters in the hallway about it. And then yesterday, I don't think he walked it back per se, but maybe he kind of cushioned what he was saying. He said, you know, the RNC put out their resolution. I think they have the the right to do what they want, but then asked if he agreed with McConnell's characterization of it as a violent insurrection. He said, you know, yeah, I agree. Anyone who broke into this building, I mean, no one would disagree with that. And then kind of echoed that point of that's not what the RNC was talking about, mishmash word salad type thing. And what I What is most kind of interesting to me about this whole dynamic is the people who are saying, the Republicans who are saying, let's just move on. You had Susan Collins say explicitly, you know, every moment that is spent relitigating a lost election or defending those who have been convicted of criminal behavior moves us farther away from the goal of victory this fall. That attitude makes sense to me. And that's kind of like what you were saying in your intro, you know, benefit off of it, but don't dwell on a day that most people think is bad. But what is interesting to me about this situation is you've got Republicans who could say nothing or could say something anodyne, who are instead taking a fairly notable hard line on this stuff, like McConnell's use of the word violent insurrection. I mean, his statement was, you know, it was harsh, a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election from one administration to the next. I mean, that is yeah, like you'd, ex- you'd expect language. Joe Biden to say that exactly, or, or like Chuck Schumer. It and and as you say, it's more than is necessary. Yeah, in his and position. that is a link that I kind of see in the Pence thing as well. I mean, not he's no profile in courage, but the fact that he said anything. When, you know, a statement like that basically means he'll never run on the ticket with Trump again. Those things are notable to me that these Republicans are putting themselves in a position that they know will piss Trump off and will piss Trump people off. But there's a reason that it's important to them to put themselves on the right side of this. You know, and I don't know if that's as concrete as they know something is coming down the pike with January 6th, or they suspect that the committee is getting more aggressive or something like that. But they are notably distancing themselves from Trump in a way that they've been very hesitant to do up until this point. Yeah. And and I, I, it's a bit of a mystery to me too. I am, I'm very skeptical. I mean, 
I would love it if it were true, but I'm very skeptical of the idea that, wow, you know, inside word is that the committee's got the goods and they're all going down and Trump's going to be behind bars and you don't want to have embraced him and stuff like that. But as you say, it it's more than is required. And since I don't think it is that, I think it is more that certain, I mean, Kevin McCarthy's not in that group. Right, he's still sprinting down the sprinting mm-hmm. uh, uh, down the halls and on the in the Capitol building. I think what it is is that we are getting closer to another election, and you can sort of plot out the trend lines. And the trend lines are the committee keeps coming up with more uncomfortable stuff, and Trump keeps upping the ante and and becoming more. It's it's hard to say he's more pro January sixth since he did it right. <laughs> it's not like oh he he was kind of equivocal at first. I mean he did it right. Still he keeps upping the ante, and I I think it's more just these things are on. If you're a Republican and if you're someone like McConnell who wants to be majority leader in in 2023, and remember you know McConnell's like 80 or something, I mean, give or take. He's I mean. They're all about 80, right? Pelosi, mm-hmm. Biden, you know, they're all that age. But he wants to be in charge again. And so he wants to have a really good result um, in, in 2022. And I think it's just they see these trend lines. They're going to keep colliding as we keep getting closer to that election. And it's just not good politically. And so you want to try to do something. Um, and these are both people who, I mean... <sighs> You know, I think I think Mike Pence is done in terms of being a Trump running mate. Let's put it that way. I think that ship has sailed, and he must realize that. Um, frankly, I think his I think his political ship has sailed. Right? I mean, he's never going to be an, a, a a never Trump. Right? He's never going to be like a restoration person, and he's also never going to be a continuation of Trump. And those are the two. Those are kind of the only two options in Republican land. So he kind of has some freedom in that sense. And McConnell does too. McConnell's the one person who's never really knuckled under to Trump um, and and doesn't seem to fear Trump. But but as you're saying, it's not just them. And I, I do think it is just this, again, it's not some silver bullet, or I shouldn't even use these, these terms. Uh, it's not some devastating revelation. I think it's just that they they keep heating things up. The committee keeps heating things up and Trump keeps wanting to grab onto the hot pot. And people who are savvy want to try to, you know, sort of loosen this grip a bit, try to move in a bit in a bit of a different direction. Yeah. And I think kind of the internal debate that happened after, you know, this McDaniel signed off on this statement and it came out and kind of triggered all this is a good insight into that dynamic because she got a lot of flack pretty quickly uh, from people being annoyed that she had kind of put them in this position. You know, Mitt Romney said he was texting with her, his displeasure, <laughs> Uncle Mitt. Um, I mean, I went, does he have to call himself Mitt McDaniel when he talks to <laughs> yeah, her? Exactly. Like, her promise about the name? <laughs> um, you know, she, she sent out some kind of talking points to clean it up afterwards. Um, and, you know, there's some reporting that basically she is saying, what do you want me to do? I'm in an impossible situation. If I had kind of, you know, t- 
taken down the statement. It would have drawn Trump's wrath. This is what the Trumpy part of the conference, you know, wants and likes. Um, and then she also said that she had actually taken a bullet for McCarthy because they removed some language urging him to boot Cheney and Kinzinger from the House GOP caucus altogether. So, you know, she's kind of being like, what else do you want me to do? I'm, I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. But then you have McConnell expressing annoyance that the, the party is focusing on, quote, it's only liability going into the midterms. So I think that is all kind of data points in favor of your theory here, that it's more about the upcoming election than because, you know, Trump is finally going to be perp walked. Yeah, no, it's it's and, and look, I mean, she's right. She is in kind of an impossible situation. And it's notable. And she did kind of take a bullet for him in that sense. But what's, you know, because there was, again, as, as, as Kate says, there was this push that the RNC should sort of demand, put the party on record. They have to be kicked out of the party, kicked out of the conference, blah, 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 blah. But what's interesting there, though, is to the extent that that is the chit, right, that, that is getting exchanged, that is a way, way, way insider thing. There's no headline about that, like, oh, they thought it was too, you know, too big a bridge to cross to say that they should be expelled from the GOP conference. And no, nobody even knows what that means, right? But what you can see here is there, there are just these political moments. I've seen a million of them where everyone is successfully kind of dancing around something and suddenly you just kind of, you grab hold of the hot pot. And, and ow, it hurts. You know, you ever have that thing, you know, you grab a hot pot. Our brains are not fiber optic, right? There's a second when you don't feel it yet. And then you're like, ah, right? And that's kind of what happened here. Um, you've had everybody saying kind of like, you know, big lie, irregularities. People feel it very strongly. People need to be able to express themselves. Obviously, when you actually, you know, uh, break a window inside the Capitol, yeah, that's super bad. But that's just one, you know, all this kind of stuff. And you're like, okay, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she just kind of said, generically, legitimate political, January 6th, legitimate political discourse. And yeah, you can kind of say like, they can say, well, we didn't mean the bad stuff. Well, (laughs) you know, words have meaning, right? I mean, you kind of did mean that you seem to have meant everything. So I think this was a big goof on her part and sort of an example of her ineptness because yes, that is what the Trumpers want. Something, you know, the hardcore people on the on the RNC. Um, and if you if you bat them down, you are gonna get grief from Trump. But like no one made you be chair of the RNC. I mean, it's it's what the party expects from you to navigate these di- difficult situations. And she did not navigate it. And that just kind of I mean, as a as someone who wants the Democrats to, you know at least hold their own and and hopefully, you know, win seats in 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 November. That's just an albatross around every Republican's neck or it should be, right? And you can just see it a mile away because this is to the extent that there is any such thing as the Republican Party, it's the Republican National Committee. That is the Republican Party. The Republican Party has said that January 6th is awesome. I mean, that's what they said. And if you are an elected Republican, you presumptively are on board with that unless you say something to the contrary, unless you really specifically say, nope, not me. I don't agree with that. So every Democrat should be running all year said, oh, Joe, Joe Schmo, 
he thinks January sixth was awesome. You you know you throw some, you put up some you put up some pictures of of uh, one of these one of these insurrectionists kind of beating some cop over the head with a flagpole. You know, then you then you have a little moment of of one of the guys saying, "Yeah, I woke up in the hospital. I had a heart attack." Blah 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 blah. It's 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 nasty stuff. And I think they, you know, the formal Republican Party said January sixth is awesome. That's not an overstatement. That's really what happened. And any smart Republican, unless you are running in a in a highly gerrymandered district of total yahoos, knows that's a problem. And and as McConnell apparently said, everything else is awesome for us. Mm-hmm. Everything else is awesome. Why are we talking about this one thing? I mean, the one thing is the person who owns the party, but still, it is the it is the one thing. It's a big thing. But why are we talking about the one big bad thing? I have to say, it did make me laugh. This. Um these kind of Republican insiders were talking after the statement came out. And we're like, you know what? Just not enough eyeballs on that statement. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's the thing. I'm, I'm curious because as you've related what apparently McDaniel has been, has been saying, you know, uh, with among Republicans that that's what they wanted, but someone wrote that, you know, someone wrote that. So who wrote that? What is the, or have you seen any reporting on that? The only thing I've seen, in that vein is that the that phrase was not in the initial version of the statement so it got added in at some point interesting well i guess you know part of it might be and you alluded to this before that going into that meeting the big question was whether will they just be censured or will mm. it, will, will there be a demand to uh expel them from the from the house caucus uh and 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 I guess that she thought like, hey, don't I get credit for, you know, kind of smoothing off that rough edge that was going to put McCarthy in such a bind. And so I guess that, you know, possibly they were so focused on that, that they thought the rest was just like boilerplate and didn't yeah. didn't give it a close look. And I guess it's possible that I mean, I normally, you know, the RNC, as you'd expect, is made up of some pretty hardcore Republicans. Right. I mean, that's obvious. And in the modern GOP, some pretty crazy Republicans. So it wouldn't surprise me if you have a committee on, you know, who's in charge of writing things that it could come out of that committee pretty hot. But I mean, when when the president is in when a president's in office, he runs the RNC. He puts someone in charge and that's just how it works. He's the head of the party. Um, and and uh, he it's decided from the White House. And one of the interesting things here, though, is that, uh, you know, normally after a, a presidential loss, there's a rebuilding phase and there's an actual election for the head of the RNC, which there isn't when a, pre- I mean, again, when a president is in office, that person says, I, I want, you know, I want Sally here to run it. That's that's my person. And then that happens, right? So in some ways, this is a permutation of the fact that Trump is still running the RNC or kind of, or his person is still running it. But yeah, I'm very curious. And if you're listening, if you've seen any reporting on this, shoot us an email because that is a, you know, what was the origin and who didn't look at it? Because again, there's so many ways you could just say legit, you know, Americans coming together to have a rally, to, you know, express their displeasure. Obviously, we didn't like it when they hit the guy with the flagpole. You know, something to get a little distance on the stuff that like almost no one just, you know, justifies. But yeah, it's a big it's a big screw up. Yeah. So kind of speaking of the uh, election fortunes piece, 
we have had some good economic news for the Biden administration with some bad economic news. But we'll start with the good, which is kind of inspired. There's been a flurry of kind of think pieces recently about how, you know, it's not hard to see how the path gets better ahead for the Biden administration, basically talking about how so much of his, you know, approval and how people feel about him has been pretty clearly tied to things that are beyond his control or almost beyond his control, being, you know, the pandemic and the resulting kind of economic fallout. But in January, the jobs report kind of smashed all expectations. There were 467,000 jobs added. Economists had expected because of the Omicron surge that it would be, you know, an anemic amount added or potentially even jobs lost. So that was really surprising. And then on top of that, the the Labor Department does these like initial draft estimates. And then over each of the next couple months, they revisit it and fix it and adjust it with more information. And then annually, they do a revision of the whole last 12 months. And that annual revision showed that there were more jobs added than previously thought and showed some kind of themes that indicate why these numbers have been off. Like previously to this, we thought that things were getting kind of bad in in November, December, things were trailing off and then came back again, when in reality, that didn't really happen. And instead, there were just some alterations to the usual seasonal cycle of people getting hired for holiday jobs and then getting let go in January. That cycle didn't happen so much because there have been shortages with so many people getting ill from uh, from Omicron that people kind of hung on to those seasonal hires. So basically, we're, we're seeing a picture that's a lot less doom and gloom for the Biden administration than previously thought, and a lot less specifically tied to the peaks in COVID cases than previously thought. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, you know, all of that can be summed up as most of the whole late 2021, we're not moving forward, the recovery has stalled, blah, 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 really seems to have been almost entirely a, a, a figment of poor record keeping. Now, poor record keeping is a little unfair. I think what we've seen over the course of the last 12 months is that the Department of Labor's system for tracking the ebbs and flows of job numbers has just been kind of broken by the pandemic. I mean, this is ha- I think it's the there have been revisions all year, but it's the third time this has happened where you've had all these bad months of bad numbers, and then you have one month where like, oh, actually we're revising all those back months, and in fact they were great months. So this isn't like there's no I don't think there's any funny business here. It's just the as I said, the pandemic has broken the counting system basically, but it is a pretty dramatic thing. Now this morning we had the latest um, inflation numbers, and those. Basically, I mean, technically, it was an increase and it was a little over uh, market expectations of what the number would be. But basically, it's just kind of it hasn't gone down. It's still at the high level. I think the annualized number is um, a little over 7%, um, which, again, you have to see in historical terms. I remember when I was, you know, uh, 12 or something, it was like 13% or something. So, but still, it's high compared to the what people have experienced in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. Um, so that points in the opposite direction. But it does kind of raise this question of can a real shift in both the economy and perceptions of the economy 
And if we are collectively lucky and we have some lengthy respite after Omicron, are you going to start seeing Biden's numbers creep back up? I mean, I, you know, it's an, it's, a, it's a, that's a very open question. You can, you can have things that are beyond your control and not, you know, at fault for, uh, really damage you politically. And then those recede. And, but sometimes the perception can just get kind of locked in. Like you're just not up to the challenge. Um, and that really, I mean, I think I, I think I mentioned this in a post a few weeks ago, maybe we even discussed it on the podcast, that that's why one of the things that is so important is you need to be messaging to the public a storyline into which they can put new data. And and because, again, you can just be the sort of the public mind can interpret this as, okay, yeah, things are getting better, but things always get better eventually. And when things stayed bad, I decided that Biden just isn't a good president. And the fact that some things have gotten better, I still think he's a bad president. You know, things get better. It's not really a president, blah, 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 blah. You need a president, a White House, a political party. The facts are the facts, right? There's still COVID. You can't have great messaging that that makes people think the last two years haven't haven't happened. But in this case, I think they really need to have a storyline out there that basically says, yeah, it was tough, but Biden was doing the right stuff, even when it was unpopular, even when he was getting unpopular, even when everybody's complaining and Republicans were hoping everything would be terrible. But now we're seeing that his his plans are, you know, are coming to fruition and, uh, you know, he's validated and, you know, you, you, you change it from that story, that very negative and politically damaging for Democrat story that I mentioned a moment ago to, in fact, yay Biden. You know, he didn't, he didn't shift course just because things got hard for a while and, and he's been vindicated. And that is the kind of, you know, is the American public going to, going to buy into that? Who knows? But that is the kind of storyline that they will need to buy into if Democrats have a hope of a non, you know, a non-terrible uh, midterm election. And just, you know, most of you listening know this, but if the president is is down like at, at 41 or 42 percent approval, his party's going to get crushed in the midterms. I mean, just crushed. So you really need to see those numbers at least get up into the high 40s to have kind of any hope of a reasonably positive, you know, election. And that's not impossible. I mean, his his numbers, you know, kind of fell dramatically over just a period of a couple months in the middle of the year. So it's possible, you know, it could happen. I think the problem with getting that messaging out is kind of twofold. One being, we saw every time these kind of dismal job numbers came out, even those that were adjusted significantly up after the fact, it almost didn't matter that they were that they were altered later because you got this flurry of headlines about the economy sucks, losing jobs, and then just not the same at all amount of follow-up articles being like, just kidding, everything's great. You know, it's, and it, that's part of the the news' bias towards negative news. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the clearest kind of trend in this. But so you've got that piece of it. And then that's kind of compounded by the fact that Biden does not have a Fox News. You know, he doesn't have yeah. a propaganda network who will run days and days and days of the labor department was wrong. Jobs are amazing. Like best job history ever. He just doesn't right. have that. So he's got to find a way 
to get that message out on his own through a media apparatus that very, very much prioritizes negative news, plus all the while doing that while, as you say, inflation is still high, even if the job market is looking pretty good. So that is a hard thing to navigate, especially when Americans are just classically terrible at knowing if the economy is actually good or bad. And so much of that relies on just impressions they're getting, whether that be, you know, from from headlines or from kind of local news packages showing the signs outside gas stations, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. So I think it is hard for them to craft a winning argument there. I think it gets much easier if it's tied to how people are experiencing the world vis-a-vis COVID. And there is another, I think, glimmer of hope for the administration because it is looking now like the United States past the peak of our, our Omicron cases. Obviously, that doesn't mean that people aren't going to keep getting infected and everything, but it seems like right now, at least that the brunt is kind of behind us, which could kind of open the way in the future to a more normal looking world, which I think matters to people and affects their perception of the economy more than the actual economy does. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it and it is also important to remember that what we call the economy are these, you know, this one way of counting jobs. And, you know, these are statistics. You know, if we think about it, the vast majority of people in this country have just gone through the pandemic with their job, right? They didn't lose their job. So in a sense, that number is just a number of, of what someone else is experiencing. You know, look, I think the reality is, and this is important for, for Democrats to keep in mind, is that the country has been in a terrible shape for a while now, mainly just because of COVID and all the knock-on effects of COVID. That makes your experience pretty negative, right? And and when you hear these like, oh, terrible numbers, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I am. It is terrible. It just validates something you're, you're thinking. And so, you know, that is just the reality. And I think the, re- the key is that Biden and, and in, a, in a deeper sense, the country need to catch a break after Omicron. We need to, you know, not get another uh, you know, another variant. Now, that's that sounds a little pie in the sky, considering that we went from Delta right into Omicron. But, you know, maybe we will get lucky and, and um, Omicron will have, you know, increased population immunity to a significant extent. And maybe we're, you know, it's not going to be done, but maybe we're moving towards an endemic phase where it's all more manageable, but we can... We can hope. I guess there's also this thing with, uh, despite how good everything seems for the for the Republicans, they uh, McConnell keeps striking out with these with these uh, Republicans in various blue states who just no, they don't want to do it. Right. Yeah. So we had just yesterday Larry Hogan kind of concretely finally say. I'm not running for Senate. And this isn't a huge shock. Every time he's talked about it recently, he's basically said he doesn't want the job. But, you know, he was being courted pretty aggressively by McConnell. And McConnell's wife was having lunches with his wife where he where she was pitching her on the idea. You know, the two are friends, but still. And then you had uh, Rick Scott, who heads the, the Senate campaign chair right now. He had multiple conversations with Hogan. You had Susan Collins calling him, just kind of a full court press. 
which you can see the appeal of because then, you know, Hogan is popular. It would force Democrats to expend resources in Maryland where they have an eight to one registration advantage. I mean, they're going to have to be defending a lot more difficult to seats, So that is not a drain they wanted. Um, and Hogan said no. And he also said he included in those comments you know, I'm going to keep doing what I do, which is call out the dysfunction and division in Washington. So kind of even a little slap on his way out, which was really reminded me of Kristen Nunu, who, yep. who did a yep. very similar thing about a month or two ago. He too, being very, you know, feted by McConnell and co, um, he would have actually been a huge win for the Republicans because the incumbent there is Maggie Hassan, who only won by about a thousand votes in 2016. Sununu is hugely popular in New Hampshire. I mean, it would have been a, a tough race, I think, for Hassan to win. But Sununu said no. And then on his way out, kind of said, I'd rather be doing things for New Hampshire than be doing nothing in the Senate, contributing to partisan gridlock. He even includes little details like he was talking to Republican senators about the gig. And he, you know, he told the press, he just said, you know, they seem content with doing nothing. You know, I asked them, why didn't you kind of achieve these planks of your agenda back in 2017 when you had full control? They they gave me crickets. They didn't want to do anything. You know, very kind of aggressive about how sucky a job this is as he slaps in the face McConnell and Rick Scott and all these other people who are trying to win him over. Yeah, no, it's 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 uh it, it doesn't look like a fun job and and you know they're trying to they are trying the McConnells and Scotts are trying to finesse something that is going to be hard to finesse, which is to say that it's a Trump party. Right. It's a Trump party and they're trying to get these non-Trump people thinking you can do that thing, kind of have, you know, have both ways. Uh, and those people are kind of like, eh, I, why do why do I, you know, why do I want to do that? So, yeah, well, and, and uh, hopefully for Democrats, that will, you know, somehow redound to their um, advantage. But it's a it's a, right now things don't look great. There's no there's no question about that. It doesn't. But I also think kind of the biggest thing that Democrats could potentially have in this case is if Republicans err by running Looney Tunes candidates and kind of Absolutely. giving away what should have Absolutely. been a huge advantage. And, you know, we've Absolutely. seen that happen before. So and that's why that Jan 6 stuff, I think the McConnell's and 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 these people, you know, because ancient history now. But this is kind of this is what happened to uh, the Republicans in 2010 and 2012 when they twice were not able to win the Senate. Because they just had these kind of like whack jobs, even though they had sto a storming good year in 2010, um, and but they couldn't get it done because they were just their their candidates were just bad and kind of nuts, you know, yep. Tea Party stuff. So, anyway, okay. so questions, questions or one question, yeah. So first from Maggie, who says, "I can't wrap my head around why the Biden team is taking so long to nominate Breyer's replacement." Uh, Trump announced Barrett less than ten days after Ginsburg's death. Uh, Biden says he has plans to announce the nominee at the end of February. Come on. I can't believe Biden didn't already have a top pick in mind. The news of San Lujan stroke just underscores how tenuous the situation is. I have to say, I, I'm with her. I mean, at this point, it's kind of like you can't do anything until Lujan is back. So there is a bit of a built-in delay. But I, you know, I remember right after Breyer announced his retirement, Durbin was like, yeah, you know, I don't think we have to go quite as fast as Amy Coney Barrett, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, my God, dude, you're trying to win a procedural 
you know, kind of debate that A, no one's even having, and B, if it was being had, only people who have an intimate knowledge of the timeline of Barrett's confirmation would care about. Like, I'm with Maggie here. I think you name your person, you shove it through before anyone has a chance to have a heart attack, and that's that. Yeah, I... I, uh... I, I guess I'm a little, little less a sense of, of, of there's a big rush because I don't, I, I think they're going to stay in the majority. Uh, but I kind of agree. Like, certainly you shouldn't be doing like, oh, we need to be, you know, we need to have, I mean, come on. It seems to be three people, you know, do an all nighter, figure out who it's going to be and then just move it ahead. Um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a little less exercised about it than Maggie and Kate are, but I can't really disagree with them. Like, what is, like, why are you waiting? And even even in political terms, notch a victory, man, you know. Well, and the other piece of this is just the longer it stretches out, the more time it gives for contention to bubble up, which is already happening. You know, now we have Michelle Childs, who's Jim Clyburn's big, big favorite, who he's been pushing aggressively and publicly. She's starting to get some blowback from the labor space because she spent some time as, you know, a lawyer representing management in gender and racial discrimination cases, which is an issue with progressives. There's another piece to her past where she has a history of handing down such punitive decisions in uh, criminal justice cases that some upper courts throw them out. In one case, even adding a little admonishment that she didn't take the time to consider the case well. So now you've got this situation where there's potential bubbling up for the story to not become, here's Biden's super cool pick that's going to breathe life back into the Democratic constituency. And instead, how much sway does Clyburn have with Biden? Is this going to be a massive rift between the two men? And it's just, again, I think it goes to the central point of pick your person, get them through, and don't leave time to you know snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Yeah, we agree that like when you have 51 votes, what is what else is there to do? Exactly. Just do it. It can only get worse. It can only, you know, 52 votes doesn't matter. 49 votes matters a huge amount. All right. So this is from Carl. Um, he says, if Republicans want to reform the Electoral Count Act because of Kamala Harris, then my question is, what can Democrats get out of a deal in the Senate beyond restricting the VP's role in counting the votes? Uh, my hope is that something can be done that limits any mischief done by the states. So I'll say on this count, we we still only have like the foggiest details of what's going on in this kind of bipartisan group that has Republicans involved. We know that a big part is they want to codify that the VP's role is ceremonial. Um, they want to increase the number of lawmakers that have to sign on to an objection before you get the full vote in the House and the Senate. And we know they're looking at kind of federal penalties about harassing poll workers. But I think what would be probably kind of the most important piece actually comes from the other effort done by King, Durbin, Klobuchar group, which is in at least in conversation with this bigger bipartisan group. In their draft, it says that state legislatures cannot appoint electors after election day. And I think that could actually be really important. That's and a much, really much bigger good. deal. That's a much bigger deal. Right. Yeah. But it's no, I, very yeah. unclear at this point. Is that a deal breaker for Republicans? Is that going to be able to make it into the Republican effort? Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, I tend to think nothing is going to happen on this front because as we've talked about before, you know, you get your three Republicans, but that doesn't mean anything. But, you know, the vice president thing is the vice president can't do anything now. Right. And, and, And so a law, a second law isn't going to stop you from breaking the first law. 
But if they can get something on this, you know, not that the state legislatures cannot just decide the vote doesn't count, that would be a big deal. That isn't just a sort of a minor thing. That's a big, big deal in terms of preserving democratic process in that country. So if they could get that, I would say absolutely, because that's that's a big deal. Yeah, I would say that would make the whole thing worth it, including the inevitable fact that if this passes, Republicans involved in the effort are going to point to this to be like, no, we love elections. See, we, yeah. you know, yeah, it's going to be the rejoinder to every single January 6th question from now on. I still think that would be worth it if you can get the state legislature piece done. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But and and probably only if 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 you can get that because that's something that's real. The other things are not are not real. Just small bore, yeah. Yeah, or even or even literally not real. The vice president's thing is just not real. So anyway, remember the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get twenty five percent off at Grady's Cold Brew dot com with promo code TPM. All right, see you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.